Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grape. Well, hello guys and gals, welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 101. First one after my two-week vacation. And uh, I got a good one for you today. It's kind of an easy one for me because I talk about getting over fear all the time. Um, but on the MeWe post where we get all these great ideas for Miyagi Mornings from the community, and you can friend me up there and then you can look for the post that's uh, sticky to the top of my profile. You can comment there and you'll be really likely to get on the air. Um, but he says, this is from White Monster Slav. Question from my wife for Miyagi Mornings. How do I push past the fear of failing at unconventional lifestyle that I feel I'm unprepared for? Homeschooling my kids, having a career that doesn't rely on established norms, etc. Really? I don't want to, like, kind of point out how obvious the answer to this is. But really? I mean, I want you to think about this. More than before COVID, before the massive migration to homeschool, about 3 million kids a year receive their education from homeschooling. Three million. Number's probably something like 11 million or even higher now. And that's not counting the kids that are going to school at home because the teachers who are heroes that don't wear capes are afraid of COVID, right? I'm talking about kids that are actually homeschooled. Um, so what you're saying is the parents of those three-plus million kids, they're somehow super special people who can do what you can Because let's talk about a few of the things. Let's just zoom in on the homeschool one first. All the objections to homeschooling are based on propaganda because the machine's afraid that you'll actually do it, and they want to make you afraid. Homeschool kids are not well adjusted. I'll tell you something about homeschool kids. When I've interviewed people for jobs and things like that, even little things like farmhand stuff and all, I interview a homeschooled kid, especially by the time they're in teens, and I look at them and I go, you were homeschooled, weren't you? And I don't do that in a negative way. I do that because of the way they handle themselves. They handle themselves like a young adult instead of a child. What, what is so great about the existing system? Let's look at what the existing system's doing and, and then ask ourselves, should we really be afraid to try something different? So we have an entire generation of failure to launch right now. We have kids that are kids that are 30 years old who still live at home. We have kids who are 30 years old, who still play video games all the time, every day. We have kids, that, especially young males, that can't even maintain a relationship with a girl. Like They might date a lot, but they don't maintain a relationship. They don't start families anymore. That's just half the problem. we got kids in their 30s walking around with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to the collegiate system that uh, guaranteed that they would make more money that can't pay their debt or get a job. You think you're going to do worse than that? I mean, really, I want you to just think about it. Like, for everything you say, well, well, you know, what if they can't find a job? So everybody that goes to the public school system gets a job? What is their success rate in that? Like, a good job. 
Well, they won't be able to get into college. Well, right now in America, an unduly high number percentage of kids go to college. Probably a lot of them that should. It's over 70% of kids that come out of that system go to college. So if we gauge that system on its success of getting kids in the door at a university, it looks pretty good. Do you really think 7 out of 10 people are capable of doing university-level work coming out of the system that we've, we've got working for us right now that's funded by money that's stolen from you? What, let me do it another way. I always, when people are afraid of something, I always say, well, what's the, what's the worst that could happen? Let's say you tried homeschooling and it didn't work out. And you realize, like, my kids really were better off in the state system. I don't think that would, but let's say they did. So what happens? You send them back. It's not like they're going to stamp your kid with a black mark on their head for the rest of their life. There's no such thing as a permanent record. It doesn't exist. Sasquatch has it in a satchel flying over the rainbow on a unicorn. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. They just go back to the system they're already in. It's literally the lowest risk thing in this category of questions you can ask me. I know people who have had kids that they've pulled out of public school, and they've actually decided that, yes, my kid actually does better there. And they send them back. It's freedom of choice. I never fault them for it. In my experience, the majority that pull them out never send them back, and kids don't want to go back. You know, it amazes me that my grandson is doing incredibly well with homeschooling and he'll be taking a nap in the afternoon with the dog while the kids in normal school are getting off a bus that they just spent 45 minutes on the Texas heat on there's there is no downside well can they get into college sure do it all the time homeschool kids who want to go to college get in at a higher rate than kids out of public school that want to go to college. Their admission rates are higher. A lower percentage of them go. We should look into that for a second, shouldn't we? That's because they are independent thinkers who actually do the math and say, if I get a degree in this and it costs me this much money, does it really further my life? They make informed decisions. Because they make informed decisions, a lot of them pursue other career paths, like entrepreneurialism, like going to coder boot camps. Like, There's nothing that you're held back from. I've personally interviewed... A young man who was homeschooled his entire life who got into Harvard. Wasn't even hard as far as he was concerned. You know why? Because he was capable of Harvard level work. Just because Johnny or Susie goes to, you know, Abraham Lincoln Middle School does not mean they're going to get into Harvard or Princeton or Yale, and they probably won't. The vast majority of people that bring stuff up like that, well, what if they want to get into really good school? They're probably not going to anyway. Those schools are exclusive, meaning a very small number of people get into it. I think the value of them is more in networking than education, personally. But whatever they want to do, if they're capable of doing it, they can do it as a homeschooler. The upside is your kid won't be bullied. Your kid won't be picked on. Your kid won't be slapped in the face by a bully that's bigger than him, and you're dumb enough to tell him, well, you need to learn to stand up to a bully. And you understand that bully's here, and he's here. That's why that bully does the shit that he does. And your kid, when they defend themselves in some situation like that, successfully or unsuccessfully, won't be held equally responsible for being attacked. As you can tell, I have like utter contempt for the current educational system that we have, that we call a school system or an education system. It's really an indoctrination system, and it's basically minimum security prison. So what you're asking is, how do I get over the fear of not sending my child to minimum security prison? And the answer is, just get the hell over it and do it if that's what you really want to do. Are you looking for excuses because you don't really want to do it? 
If that's the case, I can't fix that for you. You have to do soul searching and figure out what your motivation is to want to do it. If you want to do it and you actually are just letting fear get in the way, just don't. Starting the other thing. What about going down a career path that's unconventional? Well, if you're successful, like, you know, if you have a career as a podcaster, you'll find that economic recessions don't really hurt you. You're incredibly resilient. And you make a shitload more money than people doing the same thing that you do or similar things that you do in the conventional norms. However, I have to tell you this. It's not as easy as homeschooling. You have a lot more potential to fail. Now, maybe the question was, I can't tell toward, like, well, what if my kids do that? Your kids are going to do what they're going to do anyway. I went to regular school. Then I joined the United States Army. I even participated in the Army GI Bill and the college fund. So I had money to go to college. And when I got out, I said, I don't want to go. Nothing could change my mind because I had already figured out what I wanted to do with you. And your kids will grow up, hopefully, become adults, and pursue what the hell they want to pursue. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. Right? And I know that's hard for some parents to hear because you want to control, you want to shape. And what a lot of you guys are doing is you're trying to live vicariously through your children. That's what you mean when you say, I want my child to have opportunities I didn't have. You had the opportunities. You chose not to take them. You chose to go a different way, just like I did. If you do your job as a parent, if you really do your job as a parent, and your kid's like 18, 19, 20 years old, and they're picking the way they're going to go with their career, if you've done your job right and you tell them what you think they should do, the response you should get would be, Mom, Dad, I appreciate your opinion. Now I'm going to go do what I want to do. And I might consider your opinion, but I'm going to do what's right for me. That's hard to hear, but it's what you want to hear. It means you did your freaking job. And a great way to do that? Homeschooling. Sorry if I'm a little, you know, on it. <sighs> Businesses, man. The vast majority of people who start a business fail. The vast majority of parents that homeschool children succeed. If we judge homeschoolers against conventionally schooled children, they do better across the board in every measurable way. It's not even close. It's not even, you can look the stuff, I'm not going to like start citing statistics to you. If you really care that much, you can look them up yourself. I can't tell you that about a business. I can't tell you that about a business. I can't tell you about that an unconventional career path, whatever the hell that means. Or, you know, it's not part of conventional norms, whatever the hell that means. All I can tell you is that people who are genuinely happy people are people that figure out what they want and they go after it. And generally, when people figure out what they want the first time and they go after it, one of two things happens. They either fail and they have to adapt, improvise, overcome, and find a new way to keep going after it, or they get it. And when they get it, most of the time, not every time, most of the time, it ends up not being what they expected, and therefore they have to adapt and either improve it, change it, or go after something totally different until they find what really works for them. But the, what makes them happy is they never stop trying. They never give up. One of the things, there's three really important things to having a happy life. And one of those is something to look forward to. We'll talk about the other ones in the future. But it's something to look forward to. When you're pursuing something, you have something to look forward to. And this is why so many people are miserable. They get a job. It pays the bills, and it gives them nothing to look forward to, except retirement, which over time they begin to realize, if I stay this path, is me being really freaking old and not really having as much money as I need to really do the things I want to do. And I'm sacrificing all this for that, and that is a deception. 
So how do you get over the fear of pursuing what you really want? Maybe you need to look at the horrific fear you should feel by staying in a system that's designed to just basically wring everything out of you. You're like a Maasai cattle in this system. They milk you and they bleed you and they milk you and they bleed you and they milk you and they bleed you and they keep promising you a carrot on a stick and it's not really there. And when you get old, by their definition, they get rid of you. They don't give a shit about you. Every time you like go to a place like a Walmart store and see some old lady working there, hi, welcome to Walmart, here's a cart. You think, well, that's good that they gave her a job. You think that was her dream when she was 30 or 40 years age? Did staying the course, did staying in conventional norms prevent her from being the old lady handing out shopping carts at the front of Walmart? Now, don't make the mistake. I'm not putting her down. I'm just asking you. Is that what you want? Because I can't guarantee you that you'll end up with something like that in your life or not end up with it if you pursue unconventional norms. I can't guarantee it. And I can't guarantee it won't happen if you stay in the system. What I can guarantee you is either you are in the pursuit of happiness or you're not. And there's two ways to pursue happiness. There's pursuing happiness through aggressively pursuing that which makes you happy. And there's the false promise of happiness and its pursuit. If I just do these things that I don't like in my life, if I just do these things that they say I'm supposed to do, and realize they have no interest in your happiness, they only have interest in your output, then eventually I'll find happiness. Now this is not anti-conventional careers. There's people that love their jobs. Do you? If you did, you wouldn't be worried about being afraid of doing something else. You wouldn't. Because you'd be happy. So, when you say you fear pursuing something that gives you the potential to do something you love, I ask you, how the hell are you not more afraid not to? How are you not more terrified of wasting your life force doing something for other people who really don't give two shits about you so that you can fit conventional norms. I find that far more terrifying, far more horrifying. I think back to like when I started TSP. It was 2008. And I got this little bitty recorder, this cheap-ass headset that I had to actually tape together. Not because I was broke, because I didn't really know, is this really what I want to do? I got my car. I did a couple episodes in my car on my way to work. A low-risk approach. That's one we can get over fear. Try a low-risk approach. Start out with a side hustle, etc. Figure out if it's what you really want to pursue before you pursue it. And when you figure out it's what you want to pursue, you do it. So I think back to being a few weeks into this and thinking, if I'm going to make this work, i got to do this five days a week, every week, for the next couple of years. I've got to put my heart and my soul in it, and I have to keep doing this other thing that I really don't want to do anymore. And I remember thinking about that, going, if I could just keep doing this other thing that I really don't want to do and keep just throwing money in savings and investments, in 10 years, I'm going to be in really good shape. And by then, who knows, man, some of these things that I'm involved with and this partner that I have could become worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Anybody looking at it would have said, you're crazy to do this stupid podcasting thing. What the hell is a podcast anyway? But I did it for a couple weeks, and I said, I 
love this. I will have this. I will make this work. And I did. And for every story like that in my life where I wanted something bad enough to go make it happen, there's a story that I tr where I tried and it didn't work. And you know what happened when the things didn't work? I just did something else. You know, there's a real risk in thinking, gee, look at those cars doing 85 miles an hour on the highway. If I try to sprint across that road, I could get run over and wiped out like a little spread on the ground. That's a risk. When it comes to pursuing you, what you love, never fear it. Fear not doing it. Fear letting fear control you. When it comes to educating your kids, what you're saying is you think the state can do a better job raising your children than you can. And I don't fault you for it. You've been conditioned to believe that. It's a lie. It's a lie. Everything will be okay if you just do what we say is a lie. Be afraid of that. There is no room in your life to fear pursuing your dreams and raising your own children. With that, we'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Well, hello there, folks, and welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 102. Today we have a episode that should be relatively short, but it may be complicated to understand, even though it's not. It's one of those things, like, when you understand it, it's really easy. When you don't understand it, it's difficult to get to the point of understanding it, if that makes any sense. So we have a question about crypto and taxation. This came on the uh, sticky thread on the top of my MeWe profile, which is the best place to ask questions like this. It says, if my business accepts $100 worth of Bitcoin for a good, would I then owe X percent of tax on $100 value at the time of purchase, or would I owe X percent value of the Bitcoin at the time of paying the actual taxes? Since my business is new, I can only claim as much expense as my business brings in. That's true for everybody, no matter how new your business is. And it doesn't really pertain to the question here on revenue. Uh, that is in terms of dollar value at the time of the transaction or the value of those coins on December 31st. I guess the end of the tax year is what he's getting at. If Bitcoin doubled by the end of the year and I never sold the coins the customer sent, did my revenue also double? Short answer would be no. That seems like kind of a jumble, but here's what he's basically saying. I, I go out. And I'm conducting business. Somebody comes in and buys a shirt off the rack for a hundred bucks, an Armani shirt or something, right? And so they buy that shirt and they pay me with Bitcoin. And I have a cost of goods sold in there. In other words, I have an expense against it. Let's say that it's 50 bucks, so I've realized $50 in profit. It's really irrelevant because there's a lot of expenses that go to running a business that then get kind of prorated across the whole thing as part of your what you call COGS or cost of goods sold. So not only do you have the cost of the, the, the shirt that you bought from a wholesaler, you have the cost of the rent on the building. You have everything you can expense, electricity, uh, depreciation expenses, etc. So the expense side of this equation is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Because the expense is going to apply the exact same way to all your revenue. All you have when you've done that transaction is you have top-line revenue. That's it. And in this case, it's actually easy to understand because he's not transferred, sold, converted to Bitcoin. So we'll handle it that way first. So the answer is you report $100 worth of revenue. That's it. How much you can expense, what you can expense, how you expense it is irrelevant. You have $100 in revenue. If Bitcoin quadruples, quintuples, the whatever, doesn't matter. The time you receive it 
It locks in that price at the amount of revenue that you received when you received it. Anything that's like an expense goes on the other side of the equation as a deduction off of revenue. So if there was some sort of a fee involved, or let's say that you sold it for $100, bucks, and by the time the transaction went through, you got $96. You reported $96 in revenue. Let's say by the time the transaction cleared, a Bitcoin went up in value, and at the time that you actually received the money, as the settlement came, $104. That's the revenue. Doesn't matter. The amount of money that comes in is the revenue. Any fees, any expenses, whatever, are on the expense side of the balance sheet. That's it. If you don't sell, convert, trade the coin, you don't ever pay any taxes above the, minimum, the, the, the received value of the Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is irrelevant to this. You've received a cryptocurrency according to the United States Tag Guidance as a merchant selling a product when receiving the currency, it's revenue. Even though it's not revenue because they say it's not a currency. This is where it starts to get gray, but it's very easy to understand. So when do I pay more taxes on it? If at some point I sell that Bitcoin and it's gone up in value, I will now pay taxes on the differential. This is assuming you're doing all your reporting above board. So let's say I take it in and straight on $100 so we can keep it straight in our head. And it doesn't matter if it's that year. It doesn't matter if it's 10 years from now. Let's say that, that little piece of Bitcoin, those Satoshis, are now worth $150. When you sell that Bitcoin for $150 or that... It, doesn't matter. it could be Atom, it could be Cosmos, it could be anything. It could be R, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're being above board, when you sell it, you would pay tax on $50, not of revenue, capital gains. It's a weird world that we live in that we can have the same thing be two different things. Effectively, the way this is working out, when you receive Bitcoin for merchandise, you've purchased it. Weird, I know, because when somebody gives you a hundred dollars in U.S. currency, you didn't purchase it, and if the dollar's value goes up over time or down over time, you don't get to take a deduction on the loss or have to pay taxes on the gain. Cryptocurrencies in this weird world, the government is set up to benefit it, not you. Surprising, I know. So let's say that you receive the Bitcoin, hundred bucks. Two months later, Bitcoin goes down twenty percent. Now it's worth eighty. And you're like, I just want my money. So you sell it. Now you would take a $20 capital loss. It works in both. They can't have it both ways. Right? So you receive the Bitcoin. It's revenue. You sell the Bitcoin. It's a loss or a gain. All right? Based on the differential between the time you purchased and or sold or traded. There's a way you can play this to your advantage. Here's an example. Let's say your business takes in a shitload of Bitcoin this year. You don't ever, you take a shitload of cryptocurrency in. You don't ever really want to sell it. It goes down, everything, the whole market comes down in value. If you convert all of it into like a really great cryptocurrency for long term holding, i.e., Bitcoin, and it creates a big capital loss, it's a capital loss. So let's say that in my operations, one of my favorite cryptocurrencies is something like Litecoin. And let's say I took in $10,000 in Litecoin, and I reported that as $10,000 worth of revenue. 
And the crypto market really takes a shit this year, and my Litecoin that was $10,000 is only worth $5,000. Again, just pulling numbers out of my ass here to make it easy to calculate. I would have had $10,000 in revenue, less expenses on the other side of the balance sheet. That is just straight-up revenue. In the trade, I went from Litecoin to Bitcoin, and they move very much in concert. 98% together is the movement ratio between Litecoin and Bitcoin. So we could do this either direction, if you're understanding each other. Okay. Now, before the end of the tax year, I convert all my Litecoin into Bitcoin. That's a trade. It's a trade. Guess what? I now have a capital loss of $5,000. You see, you, this is what I'm talking about. Where you have to focus on the 95% of the text code that tells you how to not do what the 5% says you have to do. That's how the tax code works. Most of the tax code is this big. Little bitty piece of it says this is how much you have to pay. The rest of it is how you don't pay it. That's one strategy. It's lots of strategy. This is where it gets very difficult. It's easy to understand, but complicated too. Every time you sell or trade or spend, by the way, spending is also considered selling. So let's say I get my Bitcoin in and I pay my supplier with it. The differential between the receipt and the, and, and the purchase is considered Basically, a capital gain timeline, shorter long-term gains, that's up to your accountant. And when you bought something with it, if it was worth more, you've realized the gain. If it's worth less, you've realized the loss. So that's another strategy you could employ. You could use your cryptocurrency that's currently at a loss to buy stuff and take capital, then take cash and buy it back. Cool, huh? Right? There's a lot of ways to do this, but this is where it gets complicated. If you are over time, receiving lots of small transactions and spending, it's almost impossible to get right on compliance because you are supposed to use first in, first out. In other words, when you spend that Bitcoin, you're supposed to be saying, I spent the oldest Bitcoin first because they realize over time that's the most likely to have gains, and then you can play games like, but I got this Bitcoin today and spend it today. Well, it all depends. It all depends. What if it actually is that Bitcoin? Like if we have one giant account that they all come into, or there are no accounts, one giant address they all come into, well, that's one thing. But if we actually have different addresses they come into, we spend it, that Bitcoin came in, that Bitcoin went out, does it work? I don't know. They don't know. They don't provide enough guidance to know whether that's true or not. With individual trading accounts, it works. IRS has given guidance on that that makes that really clear. It's a mess. It's easy to understand. You receive it. It's revenue. You spend it. You trade it. You sell it. It's all the same. And you've realized a gain or a loss in between. Again, there are ways to use this to your advantage. Here's an example. I made not the best buy at one point in my life on some Litecoin. I actually blame Coinbase for this. I got overcharged for it during a run-up. I tried to buy it. It was supposed to be instant. It didn't clear for three days later, and I ended up paying an inflated price on Litecoin during a run-up. I won't get into how. Just that's what happened. Like It was supposed to be transfer instant purchase from your bank account, blah, blah, blah. And when I did it, it's like you know, it took 72 hours for the purchase to go through, and Litecoin went up like 80 freaking dollars, and I bought quite a bit of it. What this did is when I amateurized all the Litecoin that I had sitting, I had a loss of about $3,000 due to that one fairly large transaction. And in the same tax year, I had actually purchased a car using cryptocurrency. Now, I'm all about not paying the man when you don't have to pay the man, but when you convert Bitcoin to cash, transfer cash to your bank account, and then pay Dodge, 
Not Doge, Dodge. And it's, by the way, media, it's not Doja coin. It's not Doja coin. It's Doge coin, you morons. We'll get to the media in a second as I wrap up today. When you do that, you report it. So I had a significant capital gain on some Bitcoin and some Ethereum that I used to buy my car. And that, fully above board, I will pay my taxes. And I sat there toward the end of the tax year, and I looked at that Litecoin and said, well, why don't I just sell my Litecoin into Bitcoin? I had a $3,000 loss, because they said it's not a like kind exchange. They're the ones that shut that down. So then that $3,000 loss offset the gain on roughly $20,000 worth of crypto that I spent to buy a car. I don't make the rules. I just follow them. Now, I do want a little bit of a media rant here at the end. I listened to two bimbos, and I'm sorry, it's the only word for them, at least in regard to this subject on Fox News today, uh, try to explain cryptocurrency. One playing stupid and the other one trying to play smart. So the one was, because you know, the good cop, bad cop thing, we're like, but I didn't understand. And the other one that was explaining it, she understood less. I'm going to tell you right now, here's a prediction from Jack. My predictions tend to come true. About five years from now, We will watch clips of these idiots discussing cryptocurrency pasted together in montages. And if you go back right now, you can look at similar things that were done when the Internet was kind of coming of age. And there were these idiots like on Good Morning America going, what exactly is the Internet? Oh, let me explain it to you. But what is the app symbol? <sighs> like they were just absolutely the people that were supposed to know didn't know jack shit about Internet. Jack shit. That's what these things are going to be right now. And there was a guy on Fox News, and he was explaining how, but let me see if I can understand this. And he, he really seemed like he just kind of ad-libbed into this. He was smarter than both of them put together times 10. He's like, so right now, like, if you want to conduct international business, you have to fill out like seven layers of stuff. But if you have use blockchain, you could have a direct transaction. And then the smart bimbo goes, well, maybe eventually, but we're not there yet. What do you mean we're not there yet? Supposedly, every international crime syndicate in the world is moving billions of dollars around the world in a frictionless environment with this blockchain technology, but there's no way for corporations to do it yet? You idiot. You idiot. The technology's there. And this is what the media is talking about right now. Summing it up in a phrase. They're not using the phrase, but this is what they're saying. It's blockchain, not Bitcoin. Morons, that's what was used to, to raise billions of dollars, that most of it flushed down the toilet in 2017 with venture capitalists out in the Valley of California. We've moved past that, morons. That's a failed experiment. It's not blockchain, not Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin as a reserve currency, as an underlying financial asset, because it's incredibly hard money. That's the new world that you live in. They are literally going back four years and think they're on the cutting edge. That's how stupid these people are. I bring that up here only at the end, not to reinforce a cryptocurrency topic, but so you stop listening to these mental midgets who have their shit put together for them by a bunch of 20-something morons, grad student intern types, who do a little bit of research on frickin' the Internet and can't even figure out the right way to pronounce Dogecoin. There's no A in there. If you can't pronounce Dogecoin, you have no business talking about cryptocurrency. None. And that's, that's the bigger issue here. Like I'm, I'm saying with this, let the crypto go for a second here at the end of this episode. 
They have no business talking about most of the things that they talk about. None. They're mental midgets. If you took five of them and added their IQ up, it'd be a pretty low bar tab to pay. With that, I'll come back tomorrow with something non-crypto related, something a little different, another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with Miyagi Mornings episode 103 today as we talk about raising resilient children is one way to talk about this. Actually, the subject or the title of today's episode is Good Parenting Equals Working Yourself Out of a Job. Hold on, Karen. Don't go ape shit. Wait until you understand what I'm talking about before you say something stupid that I've heard for the last 13 years that I've talked about this subject with, but I'll always be their mom or I'll always be their dad. No one said you wouldn't. No one said you wouldn't. But what is your job for a five? Let's go back. What is your job for a one-year-old? Does it not include wiping their ass, giving them a bath? Got it? So you see where this is going now. You see where this is going? Like, if you are wiping your kid's ass when he's five years old, you're a shitty parent. Unless if there's a special need, so I get that. But like a, a normal child should be able to wipe their own ass well before five, right? So there are jobs you have as a parent that as your child progresses in age and hopefully maturity, which is what we're going to talk about today, you stop doing those things. The problem lies in that many of you don't. If you have a seven-year-old and you're still pouring their syrup on their pancake for them, I'm sorry, that's bullshit. You don't need to be doing that. A seven-year-old is more than capable of doing this. But what if they put too much syrup on it? Ah, now we're going to get to the real reason that we're doing today's episode. I saw a wonderful post today on MeWe. And it was, what is the, the, the characteristic that you can measure how well a kid does in childhood with it that has the greatest predictor of their success in life as an adult? Is it popularity? Is it IQ? Is it work ethic? It's none of those things. The work ethic will blend over into this one. Let me read you the uh, the Cliff Notes version of the article. Though there is a link in the notes, you can check out the whole article. It's totally worth the read. But here's the Cliff Notes version, one quote in it. What characteristic, measured in childhood, best predicts health, wealth, and happiness in that individual 20 years down the road when the child is an adult? Is it intelligence, grades in school, ability to make friends? No, it's none of these. Longitudinal cohort studies consistently find that self-control in childhood best predicts health, wealth, and happiness in adulthood far better than IQ scores, grades in school, friendliness, or popularity. Self-control. This, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, it's exactly what I've been saying. It's just phrased differently. Again, my phrase is, good parenting equals working yourself out of a job. When my son was growing up, I would sit down with him frequently when we had to instill discipline in him because he didn't instill it in himself. And I would remind him of something. Every year of your life, you should have less rules for me. Every year of your life, there should be less rules that I have for you. But the only way that can happen is if you impose those rules for yourself. So, you know, right now I have a rule that you can't walk across the street without looking both ways. It's one of my rules. It needs to become your rule. The rules that I have for you are not rules to control you, right? They're rules to instill within you so that you exercise them for yourself. That is self-control.
And if you do that right, that's what you should have. The number of rules, the number of restrictions on a child should decline annually. And honestly, it should decline monthly, but it's much easier to kind of keep track of what you're doing annually. If you can't come up with rules to remove from your child between the age of, let's say, seven and eight, what did you do with that year? What did you teach them in that year? What did they learn in that year? What have they now had instilled in them that you no longer need to enforce it? Because I've removed the rule, don't cross the street without looking, doesn't mean that I don't expect they'll do it anymore. Got it, Karen? See how that works? I still expect that he'll do it. I just now have transferred the responsibility to him. How are you going to get there if you can't get, put your own syrup on your own pancake? That's a thing. I've seen it. I have a 10-year-old grandson. You know what he did yesterday? Made himself breakfast. Bacon, eggs, toast. Looked like it was done by a short-order cook in a restaurant. You know why? Because we taught him how to cook. And he said, I want bacon and eggs. And instead of saying, oh, honey, we'll go get it for you, we said, go make it yourself. Doesn't mean we won't ever cook for him. We all cook for each other at times in our household. Right? We, we all like to cook to different degrees. I love to cook, so I'll do it all the time. I got a job to do in the morning. He says he's homeschooled. He can stop for 30 minutes and go cook his own food. Oh, my God, he has, he's taking time off from school. Yeah, you know what? He's doing his schoolwork in two to two and a half hours a day, and he's getting A's. And it's not because grandma and grandpa says he's getting A's because we have a program that's actually graded by an independent source. He's getting A's, working two and a half hours a day, and he's a great level ahead already, and he's kicking your kid's ass, and your kid's going to go work for my grandson someday if you don't follow this advice. Now, look, I know this seems overly simplified, but if there's any trepidation in you in this at all, you need to hear it. You need to hear it. This absolutely is what makes successful people successful and makes people that are not successful fail. You can have a kid gets good grades say, well, they, they must have self-control. They must have self-control. Surely they have self-control. How could they study and get good grades if they didn't have self-control? No, they're being controlled. Because that kid may or may not get good grades depending on what they're studying, what their aptitude is, what their interests are. But you can force someone to do work and get good grades as long as they have enough intelligence to do it. And most people do. I mean, our educational system's not that challenging, guys. It really isn't. Come on now. It just isn't. Why do you think, for instance, that if you go to any school with a good diversity of, of, of races and what have you, and you look at the top students in a graduating class, the majority of them will be Asian? Is it because they're A, intrinsically more intelligent. I think you could make a mathematical case with IQ scores that there is a slight advantage there, but not to the point where you have this total domination. What you have in that demographic is parents, call them tiger moms, who force discipline upon the child, which does not mean that they will excel once they leave that enforced discipline. It doesn't mean that. My nephew is now in his third year of law school, I uh, had a girlfriend when he was in high school. And I told him, the second she goes to college, she's going to dump you. And she's going to go freaking nuts. He said, Uncle Jack, how do you know? I said, because she's completely controlled by her parents. And the second she gets away from that control, she's going to exhibit no self-control. It took two weeks. It took two weeks for him to get his Dear Andy letter. 
You know why? Because the child was forced into control and never learned control. So we have two different ways that parents screw this up. A, they, they exhibit all the control for the child, or B, they do everything for the child, and in both instances, unless the person just has an incredible amount of internal self-discipline, and most people don't, it's never developed, and as soon as they decouple, they fail in some variety of ways. So how can we like actually teach self-control? Here's an idea. Most parents have some limitation that they place on how much candy, snack food, etc. your kids have. If you don't do that, unless you've already transferred that skill, you're a shitty parent. That's why we have eight-year-olds running around with diabetes that have like fat elbows, like fat over their elbow. If you have an eight-year-old kid that doesn't have some sort of disease who's got a fat arm, you're a shitty parent. You want to be mad at me? I don't give a shit. I'm here to give you the truth, not what you want to hear, especially on this subject. Because you're screwing up the generation that's going to have to take care of my generation when I'm old as shit. Quit doing that. So how would you handle this? Why don't you do this, parents? Figure out all the snacks day by day that you would let your kids have for a week. And look at it and make sure it makes sense and you're not overfeeding your kids and turning them into little fat asses. Then get a drawer. Maybe if there's something that needs to be refrigerated, one in the refrigerator and one in the cabinet. I say, Johnny, Mary, whatever, look at this. This is your drawer. Here's all your snacks from Sunday to Sunday. It's up to you when you eat them, what you eat, and how you eat them. Can I eat them all at once? Sure. But then you don't get any until next week, and then enforce it. But what if they go pig themselves out and throw up? Life is a teacher if you let it teach. And the more you let life teach, the faster you get to self-control. I didn't say to hand them a can of gasoline and a freaking brick of Bic lighters. I said to take the food you would give them for a week as a snack and let them control it over the week. And then see what happens. And when they get to Tuesday and they've shoved their little faces full, they only have a snack. Well, you'll get more snack allowance on Sunday. They're not going to die. I didn't say starving to death. I didn't say don't give them breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I said they've used all their snacks. And then just apply that to anything you can. When the child is ready, and when you think the child needs to start exhibiting discipline, and for some of you that were never taught this way, it's long before you think that, put a system in front of them and let the system teach. Don't let them run across an interstate. That has a serious consequence. Telling them, hey, look, if... Uh, You don't get this thing done by Friday. You don't get to do this thing you want to do on Saturday. And I'm not going to remind you, by the way, it's Monday. And walking away from it and then simply saying on Saturday, nope, didn't do it. Remember the deal we made? Okay. Let them throw a fit. Let them tell you they ruined, you ruined their life. Let them tell you they hate you. Let them run off to their room and slam the door. Guess what? We did that shit all the time in the 70s and 80s. And our parents just said, they'll get over it. And we did. And we went on, and that's why we're not a bunch of damn pussies. People in my age, the general age demographic that I'm in and older, highly devoid of wussy-ass pussy behavior. Why? Because we learned from life. Our parents certainly didn't do everything right, but in general, our generation and the generation preceding us, we were allowed to fail. You have to allow your kids to fail. You have to allow your kids to experience consequences not that you've instilled, 
but consequences of their failure to discipline themselves. This isn't even hard. Like, no one got on YouTube that didn't exist in 1975 and told the parents of my generation this shit. They just did it, and they did it because their parents before them did it. Here's where it fell apart. I am Gen X. We did raise ourselves. Unfortunately, because of that, we overcompensated a little bit with you millennials who are now parents. Millennials are no longer your 15-year-olds. Millennials are in their freaking 30s, guys. Almost 40. Like, your oldest millennials are like 37 or 38 now. They have kids. And that overcompensation went into overdrive there. The other thing that caused a big problem here with this, and this is not picking on single moms or single dads, but his divorce rate exploded. Divorce rate exploded. And there's something you call single parent syndrome. And this is where the parent who gives the primary care to the child, sometimes it's even worse because it's both sides do this, feel that it's so unfair that they live in a divorced family, that they overcompensate and try to do everything. Or, this is more prominent with single mothers and single fathers, the child becomes a replacement for the spouse. They throw everything into their kids, and they, they bond with their child in an unhealthy way. And I'm not talking about anything sexual or anything. What I'm just saying is it, it fills in that need for another person where they do everything together all the time. I know this is hard. But you and your child should be spending less, not more time together as your child becomes older. They form their own relationships, their own networks, their own interactions, and start making their own decisions. This isn't hard. But you should be asking yourself on a daily basis as a parent, if you actually care about your child's future instead of your current happiness and your current comfort, that you misidentified as their current happiness and their current comfort. If you actually care about what their life will be like in 15, 20, 25, 30 years, you don't need to be an asshole about it, but you need to teach self-control. In fact, there's no need to be an asshole about it. There was another technique I used. When I had something that needed to be done, and it was my son's responsibility to do, I'd say, I need this thing done. And he'd either do it or he wouldn't. This is before the age when all the kids had cell phones and shit, but we did have Wi-Fi. And when he didn't do it, I didn't argue with him. I just changed the password on the wireless uh, router. And he come to me and go, I can't get on the internet. Oh, did you watch the dog or whatever it is he was supposed to do? Well, no. Do you own a wireless router? No. Do you, do you pay a bill for internet service? No. So you want to use my wireless router and my internet connection. That's what you're telling me. And, and, and it's not working for you? No? Maybe you should go do the thing you're supposed to do. But, Dad... It's up to you, man. You're in total control. And you don't think you can do this with, like, a four-year-old? My granddaughter's four. When she throws a tantrum, and four-year-olds do, we go into timeout. Oh, is that cruel, Karen? Tough shit! That's why your kid's a little bitch! That's why, because you don't do this basic discipline. So she throws a fit, Papa goes out and says, Hey, control yourself. Are you going to go in the bedroom? So we put her in our bedroom because they don't have their own room here. They live with their parents. You know, they're here for school and, and to be watching her today. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, well, you got about 10 seconds to stop throwing a fit and control yourself. If it happens, great. Papa goes back to work. Grandma goes back to doing her thing. Tegan goes back to playing. It's all good. The tantrum continues. Papa picks her up, sets her in the bed, and says, 
You stay in here until you get control of yourself. You don't have to stay in here for more than 10 seconds if you don't want to. But you have to get control of you. And when you do, you choose to come right back out that door and go back to your life. Not you stay in here 5 minutes, 10 minutes. That's me applying discipline right, and applying a control. What I've done is given her a system in which she can exercise control over. It is not acceptable to start screaming and yelling. We had one yesterday, four-year-old tantrum like none other. I heard her screaming, I don't like that word. Turned out the word was no. Oh, that ain't happening. So when you get control of yourself, you can come back and be part of the family again. So then you can sit in there until you find it within yourself to control yourself. Long before I read this article, good parenting equals working yourself out of a job over time. Yes, you'll always be their mom, Karen. You'll always be their dad, Kyle. I will always be my son's father. I will always be there for him. But I damn sure am not calling him in the morning to tell him to get out of bed to go to work. Do you know that this isn't even new? When I was managing crews back when I was in my 20s, that's pretty long time ago now. I'm freaking old. Look at the, look at the gray in the beard. I actually had people that worked for me that were older than me tell me the reason they were late for work is their mom forgot to call them to tell them to get the hell out of bed. Let me read the quote one more time from the article to you. What characteristic measured in childhood best, best predicts health, wealth, and happiness in that individual 20 years down the road when a child is an adult? Is it intelligence, grades, and school ability to make friends? No, it is none of these things. Longitudinal cohort studies consistently find self-control in childhood best predicts health, wealth, and happiness in adulthood far better than IQ scores, grades in school, friendliness, or popularity. If you are never allowing your child to make themselves uncomfortable, if you are never allowing them to work through pain, to work through struggle, to work through frustration, it is impossible for that child to develop into an adult with self-control down the road. You want to know why you have these spoiled-ass, rotten, privileged little children that are in their 20s when they should be out in the best years of their working life running around the streets crying like a little bunch of bitches about somebody else's privilege when they are literally the most privileged group of people on the planet. Do you want to know why that is? They have no fucking self control because they were never allowed to develop it. They were never encouraged to develop it. And they're the ones that are going to call their boss and say, but my mom didn't wake me up today. If they work for somebody like me, that will be followed with, well, that's too bad. You're fucking fired. Because sooner or later, life is a teacher. And sadly, some people are slow learners. I'll be back with another episode for you tomorrow. Well, hey there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 104 today. Let's... Um, we're going to talk about something I've talked about a lot on the air on my podcast, which if you're only listening to Miyagi Mornings or only my videos or whatever, uh, you can find out more about that at tspc.co. It works. Trust me. You don't need the M. tspc.co. Anyway, it's called Fnords. F-N-O-R-D-S. I'm going to talk to you today about how to see a Fnord and why Fnords matter. Let's start off with why they matter. Do you want to be controlled? 
Do you want to be controlled by other people? Do you want to be acting in a way where you think you're in control of your life, yet you're actually doing something that somebody else wants you to do? Do you want to live your life where you're being led by emotion while believing that you're being led by fact? If, you're, if your answer to those two questions is no, I, I don't want that. I don't want somebody else pulling my strings like I'm a little puppet. I don't want to be running around in an emotional state believing I know something when I don't know it. Then you need to know what FNORDs are. So let me give you kind of my definition of FNORD. And the reality is that no one's ever actually, you know, the creation of the word was never completely and fully defined by the person that created the word. I don't believe you'll find it in Webster's Dictionary. I could be wrong. They do add new words all the time. But it came into popular culture through a book called the Illuminatus Trilogy, which is three books in one. You can buy them individually or in a uh, copendum, and I, I recommend that way if you're going to read this because the, the one without the rest is completely useless to you. It's kind of interesting. Uh, those were written by a couple of gentlemen named Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. Robert Anton Wilson is really an interesting guy. Some of his other books are pretty cool, like Schrodinger's Cat. Um, but it actually came from a thing called Principa Discordia, and then they took it and put it in their book, and their book sold really well, and then that kind of brought it into pop culture. So it was never completely fully defined in Principa Discordia. So I've kind of like amalgamated all the different ways to see it into my own explanation of what a Fenord is, and this is how I would define it to you. It is disinformation or irrelevant information intending to misdirect with the implication of a conspiracy or other tactics used in what is commonly known as yellow journalism, more on that in a bit, it can also be defined as a piece of misinformation hiding in plain sight. Fenords can also be trigger words, as in words that are designed to create an emotional reaction rather than a logical response, and such words are conditioned by government and media in our minds, often from childhood. So we can get somebody to respond just by using a word. And in fact, we can get two people on opposite poles to respond differently to the same word. And we can move them in a place we want them both to go at the same time, even though they think they're fighting with each other. That's what Fnords are. As you might imagine, they're very, very powerful. So let's start off with a couple of formulas where as soon as you see it, you should be like, This is probably a Fnord. One would be any time that you see a news headline, blah, 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 experts say. Right? Blah, 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 with the claim first. You, ever, they, you, you would think that like if you were writing a logical sentence, you would do it a little bit differently. You would be uh, experts say that, blah, 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 blah. Why do they do it, blah, 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 Experts say. Notice I'm using blah, 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 because if I give you an issue, you're going to get emotionally attached to it, and you're not going to see the Fenord. Right? You, have to, you have to learn to see the Fenord, then you can go into the place that triggers your emotion. We'll get to one in a minute, but let's just leave it at the blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 experts say. What we're doing when we do this, and, and this, is, this comes straight out of marketing as well, by the way. My background's in marketing, so it makes it a little easier for me to make the lead. We're planting the idea first. And then we're reinforcing it with perceived authority. This thing, blah, blah, exists or is or you should take heed of it. And then we're reinforcing with authority, comma, experts say. 
It's a very formulaic thing, and that's why if you start paying attention to it now, you'll realize like every fifth article you see a headline of uses this formula. And it may be scientists say, right? It may be some other perceived authority says. Says some politician. Says some country. Says some agency. Says some, you know, group. Says some union. Says some collection of sharp minds. Now, what makes this a Fenord? What are you led to believe when you hear blah, 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 experts say? Well, that everybody that's an expert says this is what you're supposed to do or believe or think. So, if what does it really mean? We talked to two people that we determined were experts, plural, and they agree with this claim that we're making. Now, how does it control both sides? So, remember, it's an emotional versus a logical reaction. The side that is inclined to believe the claim in the first place is, experts say, right? And the, the, the side that is inclined to disbelieve the claim says, fake news, which is also a fanord, because it triggers an emotional reaction rather than a logical response. And the reason this can be used to manipulate both sides is, maybe the claim's true. Maybe the claim's false. We've gotten the same emotional, lack-of-fact-based response from both of the larger subgroups. And we can use that since we already know. See, this is the thing. It's not designed to convince you of anything other than your side is right. And then, since we already know that the opposition will behave one way and the pro will behave another way, we already know how to lead them through to the next step. And therefore, we have these two groups that are like, we're fighting each other. No, no, no. You're being used like little bitches to further the agenda of the people that put the information out. Here's one, and we'll give you an issue, because I kind of have to, so I can properly source the information. So I recently heard, and this got into COVID, which is emotional. <laughs> Let the emotion go. It has nothing to do with whether or not vaccines work or masks work or anything like that. But it brings in another very emotional word, a fanord, even though it's a real word, because it creates an emotional response in people, because they're heroes that don't wear capes. Teachers. <gasps> wow, teachers. Oh, my God. Teachers are amazing. You know what? Some teachers are really great. Some teachers are amazing. Some teachers are heroic people. And some teachers are idiots. In any society, any group, lawyers, doctors, freaking... I don't care who they are, freaking box makers. There's geniuses and there's idiots. There's good people and bad people. You're not special just because you're part of a specific demographic as far as your job. But we, we've been conditioned to believe all teachers are heroes, right? So the agenda here was basically we want you to feel. You want somebody to feel something. You're not using logic and reason, right? We want you to feel that teachers have been abandoned in the fight against COVID. Because what they said was, we can't tell you how many educators died from COVID because no government agency has even kept track. This was an actual, like, on TV, local Dallas-Fort Worth TV station. Really? Okay. Okay. Can you tell me how many lawyers died from COVID? No. Can you tell me how many people that are computer programmers died of COVID? No? Can't? Okay. How about 
I don't know, how many herpetologists died of COVID? How many doctors? How many nurses? Like, no government agency is keeping track of these numbers of anybody. That's not a demographic that is relevant to the lethality of the disease or the effect of the disease on people. If you have two healthy 40-year-old females and one is a lawyer, one is a doctor, they're going to, over the averages, respond to the illness in the same way. It's important that we know things like their age, their comorbidities, and things like that. It's not important that we know their demographic. No government organization is tracking the deaths or serious reactions of COVID in any specific um, employment demographic. We don't know. How many police officers died of COVID? Does that mean we've abandoned the police officers? Oh, did you just get an emotional reaction to that? Because, well, like, well, yeah, but, but not this way, right? See, now we're, we're taking the emotion from another thing and we're dragging it in here just like we did with teachers. Well, teachers are good people. They're wonderful people. They're heroes that don't wear capes. Oh, my God, how could we not? See, it's irrelevant to the issue. The only reason you would do that is to trigger an emotional reaction. The thing is true, yet it's a piece of disinformation because the implication is irrelevant to reality. This is the pattern of Nortz. They all always work this way. And once you begin to see them for what they are, you can begin to discard them. You can begin to say, well... And I'll tell you how you know almost inevitably... You're looking at a Fenord. Fenords are, at this point in history, like they used to be more sophisticated. They were kind of put into the copy. They might be in the headline, but they were generally more in the copy. Right? Or if it was on TV, the announcers, the story is about blah, 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 blah. Right? And then the Fenord was buried in, into the commentary. But it all leads in the headline now. And the reason is simple. We all walk around, you know, scrolling through shit all the time. And most people only read headlines, even videos and audios. They only look at the headline and then they form a conclusion when there's no possible way the conclusion can be logical. So when you read a headline and you get an emotional, angry response or you get a superiority complex, well, I knew that was true, you are probably looking at a Fenord. It doesn't necessarily mean the claim is false or the claim is, you know, the claim isn't true. It could be a true claim. But why is it being made? How is it being utilized? How is it being leveraged? What is the purpose of writing this thing? What is the purpose of talking about this thing? Is the purpose of discussing this item to educate and to inform or to enrage? If it's educated and informed, then it's probably coming from a source that's not mainstream media today. Like, there's no mainstream media that's not just throwing fanords out at you constantly. Experts say. <laughs> and all I need is two people that have qualifications that could be accepted as being experts on a subject, and I can go comma experts say about anything. Aliens visited planet Earth yesterday and abducted seven of our senators and replaced them with men from beyond the moon comma, experts say. I'll get that freaky-haired dude from uh, Discovery Channel, right, and get him to say it even if he doesn't mean it. And I just need one more, and I can say, experts say. That's how ridiculous this is. Or, when you read it, you, you get, to, again, that point of, like, well, I knew that. Did you? 
Or do you think you know that? And even if it's true, is it still being used to control you? Is it being used to shut down the communication between two sides in a debate? Once you've done that, now you can begin to march them like a left and right foot in whichever direction you would like them to go. And it's done all the time, every day, and all moving everything into electronic formats and increasing our consumption of top-level information while simultaneously decreasing our actual knowledge. Because, again, most people don't read beyond the headline. Or if they do, as soon as they get to the thing that gives them the confirmation that they wanted or upsets them because it defies what they expected, they go back to scrolling to find something to make them feel good again. And the wedge is deeper. So the Fenord is an ancient tactic. It's been used for a very long time. You'll see a quote in the thumbnail of this video by Polybus. It's thousands of years old. Um, so it was around forever. But when they put everything into computers and cell phones and swipe left and swipe up and swipe right and all that shit, it's turbocharged today. You want to know why we're more divided today than we've ever been divided in history? If you're looking at this video... You're seeing it. The Internet. The Internet is not the cause of Fenords, but it is the playground of Fenords. It is the play. The TV, like the radio was an advancement in Fenord technology, right? And then TV was like, oh, and then cable, the illusion of choice. We have 300 channels. Yeah, they're all owned by like six companies, but you think you have, to, but we got the Internet, baby. Man, and then we got these social media aggregators that started controlling the flow of information using algorithms to show you exactly what they knew would trigger you because they're triggering you with what? Fnorts. Here's a, my last example, or my last kind of message on this. When you awaken to Fnorts, you can't not see them. You will literally see them instantaneously as soon as it shows up. You're like, Fnort, with an exception. If you only are seeing the Fenords on the oppositional side of your predisposed belief system, you do not yet see the Fenords. What you see is logical fallacy, which is a great way to identify Fenords, but until you can see the logical fallacies in the things that you tend to agree with, you don't see the Fenords. But once you see them, boom, you're awake. It's like the Matrix, right? Like unplugged, can't go back in and forget what you know. You'll see them all the time everywhere. It's basic pattern recognition. So here's the final one. Remember I said woke? Being awake and being woke are not the same thing. The term woke is Fenord. It's a classic, perfect example of a Fenord. First of all, the claim woke is absolutely the opposite of the truth. The people who claim to be woke are the most asleep people on the planet. It's the most asleep people on the planet. No one is more asleep to the reality of the current day and to what is going on around them than someone who is self-professed to be woke. And most of you that listen to me will probably agree with that. And you know what you do when you hear the term woke? You get all pissed off. You get all pissed off and you actually accept the word as reality, which is why it angers you. They're not woke. They're use, useful idiots. But if you're being led by the term woke, you're also not awake. You are also a useful idiot. 
I know that pissed you off, some of you, but you are. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because as long as the emotional response can be used to manipulate you to behave in a certain way, you're doing what they want even though you think you're fighting back. That's how fnords work. Now, the term awake will now become polluted. When I say awake, I am awake to reality. If I said that five years ago, you went, good. Tell me today that when you hear awake to reality, you don't think woke and you have, even when you know what I'm saying and you agree, you still have this underlying tidal pull of emotion, woke. <sighs> yeah, snort. We condition the word to mean a thing that causes an emotional reaction, and then we attach other words to it or words that are like it to control people. Here's another one. One more and I'll go away for the day. Environmentalism. Environmentalism. Tell me most of you didn't just think global warming, unless you've listened to me for a long time. You've become awake to reality, right? You see Fenords, right? But we've now so conditioned people with the concept of global warming, climate change, right, that anything loosely associated with it must be bad or must be good, depending on which side we come down on it. Where if 20 years ago I said, I'm an environmentalist. Most people would have said, well, damn good, so am I. But we've now polluted the concept of like taking care of the planet by using this intentionally divisive term, which cannot be proven, and generates emotion on both sides, so that both sides will oppose each other, yet march to exactly the same place that the people in power want you to go. All you have to do is actually awaken to the formula being used to manipulate you. And once you do, it can't control you anymore. Fenords are like darkness. Since they are disinformation, since they are emotion and fall fallacy-based, they don't actually exist. They don't actually exist. I'm not about darkness and light in a religious context here. I'm talking about in like a truly physical world. You go into a room with no windows and the lights are off, and the doors are closed, and there's not a seep of light coming in. You can see nothing. Darkness. But it doesn't exist. It's not real. Darkness isn't a thing. It is the absence of light. And it cannot coexist with light. Flip a switch, light comes on. The darkness is not still there coexisting with the light. It has been banished into the nothingness that it always was. But you would think something that is doesn't exist, can't hurt you. Put the switch back off, start running around in that room till you hit a wall. Something that doesn't exist can hurt you if you don't understand what it is and how it's being used against you. The absence of light can be dangerous, but when you shine a light onto a thing, it is banished. Shine a light onto the Fenords even once, and you shall see them forever. My friends, I will be back tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 105. Today's episode is going to be about homeschooling. And I, I tried to be as soft as I can with the title and the message in this. So, that no, so it's not that I mind offending people. You guys know that I don't mind offending people. I, excel, I think I have a Ph.D. in offending people when they need to be offended. I don't think anybody needs to be offended here. 
And I also want the message to get through some somewhat thick skulls. Some are you know, a little bit thick and some are really thick about this subject. Um, so the title is, Please at Least Try to Homeschool Your Kids. But this is where maybe a nose gets bent or two. When people say they've tried a thing, my follow-up question is exactly, how do you mean that you tried? So if someone says they tried to learn to play a guitar, but they never put a guitar in their hands, they never took a class, they never got an instructor, what they mean is, I looked up what it takes to learn to play a guitar and decided I didn't want to do it, you didn't try. You didn't try. What you did was you looked at a thing and you didn't want it enough to do the things necessary to get it done. This is from somebody who chose that because I actually tried to learn to play a guitar. I actually got a guitar. I bought one. I actually got a couple different people who knew how to play a guitar, tried to teach me how to play a guitar. And I realized that my musical talent level was about a negative three when it came to you know playing any instrument. So that's attempting to learn to play a guitar doing research on guitar playing and not ever getting a guitar and, you know, not, I mean, I gave it like six months and it was still pretty pathetic. And I mean, you know, two or three times a week practicing, like at that, you know, like not, not trying to become like the next great guitar hero or anything, but like just to be able to like throw a few chords together and play a guitar around a campfire, I suck. I'll admit it. And it took more than I was willing to do to get past it, but I did try. When I talk to people about homeschooling, they usually say, I would like to, but I can't. That's one class. And other people have this complete misunderstanding about what homeschooling is and uh, what it means if you homeschool and, and what your child's future is and social stuff and all. And it's just We'll just put that toward the end of the episode. Um, but the people that say they, they would want to, but they can't, sometimes will also say they tried. And I'm like, so what did you do? And the response is generally some form of, I looked into it. You can see how those guitar and the homeschool thing are the same. If you looked into it, you did research on it, you thought about it, you didn't try. You didn't try. And again, I'm going to come at this from a standpoint of, I accept that there are some parents, for whatever reason you can come up with, literally can't. And I'm going to tell you, they're the vast majority, vast minority of people say they would, but they can't. Most people could. And I want to frame it for you in a way that will probably make it really clear that you could if you wanted to. What if I said to you, assuming you have children, that if you will homeschool your children one form or another for, the, for their entire uh, school career, you know, all the way up until they go to college if, or trade school if that's what they want to do. So they could be in kindergarten now, they could be in 10th grade now, they could be wherever they are. But if you'll do it, if you'll do it, When all your kids are out, I will hand you a check, and I'll do it with a smart contract or I can't cheat. I will hand you a check for $5 million. When it's over, I will give you $5 million cash. Free and clear, all you got to do is get them through homeschool. If that doesn't do it for you, how about $10 million? If any of those instances you're like, well, I'll figure it. Okay, you can That's what you just said in your mind. There's a way to do this. Now you have to ask yourself, looking at the current educational system, that's actually an indoctrination system and basically a minimum security prison, and what I challenge you to do 
is go look at the thumbnail image on this video, because it's what made today's episode happen. I saw it, and I could not talk about it. Go look at those kids standing in that line and their age and a freaking armed cop standing next to them making sure that they stay distance from each other while they cover their face and they look like inmates in a prison. Is taking your child away from that not worth $5 million to you? Is your kid not worth $5 million to you? Because it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And I'm not here today to tell you the ways to do this. That's up to you. Because that would suppose that I know your situation. Now, my kids had an easy out. I'll admit it. I work from home. My wife is practically retired. She can look after them all day. I can do my job. All they had to do was say yes. And we pay for the education. I understand that that's easy. But you know what it seemed like before we did it? Impossible. Even with all that, it was like, wow, oh, man, I have to take care of them all day, every day. You know? But COVID hit. COVID hit, then we had them anyway. As soon as we did, we went, this isn't so bad. And then I watched my grandson knock out all his work from the homeschool stuff that the school gave him from the district in less than two hours a day. And I thought to myself, well, what the hell are they doing with him for the other seven hours a day that he's in the school? And then I watched as they started sending these kids back to school, putting them in masks, having them distance from each other, teaching them that their friends were dangerous. And I went, you know, as bad as this looks, it's not really anything new. It's not really anything new. It's just made the system more obvious. Now, I know somebody's out there listening to this right now, and you're a teacher, and you're about to lose your mind. You know what, teachers? You know this system is toxic and poison. And I'll tell you how. You want to piss off a teacher? Criticize the education system. They get angry. You want to see a really pissed off teacher? Ask them their opinion of their employer and the system they work in, and they get twice as mad as when you criticize the system, and they tell you things you never even knew about how bad it is. And if you want to see them go Tasmanian devil, full-on conniption, head explode, ask the teacher complaining about the education the following question. Well, you're a teacher. You're inside the system. Why don't you change it from the inside? And literally, like, they go, like, super ultra Karen, eyes blaze red, Fire comes out of their eyes and burns you in your stomach with rage. Do you know why? Because you touched the truth. System sucks. There's nothing you can do about it, so you don't get the blame, but you can't expect me to keep my kid in that system so you can get a paycheck. Which is what it is all about now. Your child is a dollar sign for your school district if they're in the desk. That is the most important thing for an admit... I didn't say anything about teachers administrators in the system, and school board members, principals, school superintendents. Number one thing they care about first, attendance. Number two, test scores. Not grades, test scores. Because that's how they justify the property tax on the house you think you own, but you rent from your own government. And your kids go into this system, and you know, even if they weren't teaching stupid shit like critical race theory, but they are, And even here in Texas, in a very conservative district where I have a family member who is a teacher, she was asked, are they doing this? And she said, no, they're not. But it's coming. But it's coming. 
one of the, I mean, this is a school district that's overwhelmingly Republican. The, the state representative and state senator for that district have been Republican for almost a hundred years. Um, they generally win their elections in, you know, with like 80% or more of the vote. And yet the response was, it's coming. When you send your children to Caesar, you cannot be surprised when they come home Romans. That's where you're at. You have a system now that is designed to transfer the mind of your child not from an uneducated state to an educated state, but from a natural state, from a feral state, from a state where they believe that their rights, because we are born with this understanding, that our rights are first and our duties are second. I didn't say our duties are eighth. But our duties are second to our rights. Because without our rights, what duty do we have? What duty does a North Korean have of allegiance to North Korea? To give you an extreme, to make it clear. Do not your rights, if you are to give allegiance to an entity, to a thing, to a community, do you not first need to have your rights recognized? You do. Now, I'm not saying you don't have responsibility. Every right has concurrent responsibilities. But the right comes first. The right comes first. The right is conferred to you when you pop out of your mama and you breathe your first gasp of oxygen, convert it to CO2 and become part of this world. You don't have to be religious to believe that. You only have to believe in the innate rights of human beings as entities. That is all. The educational system, which is actually an indoctrination system, is designed primarily at this point to switch the mind from a point of understanding that their, their rights and the rights of those around them come first and then confer responsibility primarily to ensure that those rights remain to switch that mind over from that feral state, that feral state, and that does not mean disloyal to your fellow man. Because that's what actual rights ha require. That you remain loyal to yourself, to your family, to your community, and to your fellow man. But it begins with the individual. Collectivism, which is what's being taught now, is that your first responsibility is your duty to the state. Now, for all the other failings of the educational system, that alone is enough reason for you to value your child being in your home, learning the way that you think they need to learn, no matter what you have to do, far more than the five or ten million dollars that got your mind to think, oh, I can do that. And I don't care what you do. I don't care if you get together with ten other parents and you create a community homeschool And each parent only takes one freaking day every other week. Now, if I was giving you a $10 million check, you would have came up with that idea all by your little self. Now, I don't blame you, especially most of you that have kids right now. You're younger than me. You got a worst experience, a far worse experience than I did with indoctrination. What do you think your children are getting? What do you think your children are getting? If you are this programmed to be this obedient, 
What do you expect from your children? Worse, if you let the cycle continue, what do you expect will be of your grandchildren? We live in a society where the slaves house, clothe, feed, and care for themselves, and they go home every day. This is a metaphor for those of you that are a little bit slow because of the indoctrination system you think is an education system, but they put upon themselves their own chains. They polish them. And they say to their fellow slaves, look how shiny my, my chains are. That's what this system has brought us. This system has brought us an entire generation. In fact, I would say multiple generations that are far too compliant. The natural state of the human being is a feral state. They have succeeded almost 100% in their goal, which is the full and 100% domestication of the human being. They want to domesticate you like a cow. We need to stop calling these people sheep. At least sheep occasionally go feral. Sheep go feral. I can show you places where feral sheep exist. You know how many feral cattle there are? None. Moo. Moo. Their goal is to make you far more domesticated than the cat or the dog. That is not good enough. They're about there. But they want you as domesticated as a cow. Chewing your cud, mindlessly being milked and bled until you've done all that you need to do. And the way that they prime that pump is with the so-called education system. And you're listening to a man who has hired hundreds of people over my career and had them work for me and can tell you that you can hire someone who went through the entire system, including university, was a straight-A student, and they can be absolutely incapable of functioning in the real world. You give your child to Caesar, you send your child to be educated by your enemy, and you are shocked when they end up hating your values and then eventually your way of life. Malcolm X said, Only a fool would let his enemy educate his children. He wasn't wrong. There's lots of ways to get this done. I can't tell you how important it is. Every time I watch my grandson finish his work, go outside and play basketball, pet the dog, etc. And three, four hours later, I watch a school bus pull up and drop off the neighbor's kid. I'm two things. Grateful that we took the step to make it happen. And I have sympathy for the child getting off that bus. I know that I'm raising a young entrepreneur, a self-thinker, an independent thinker, a self-starter. I'm not conditioning an obedient new generation of human cattle. Those words may sound harsh, but it is a harsh freaking reality. Look at the picture. I'll do you a favor. If you're on my blog, it's embedded in the post and I'll leave it there. If you're on Odyssey or YouTube, there's a link down there in the video notes. I want you, if you're still trying to talk yourself out of trying... Go look at that picture, and I challenge you to stare at that picture for one full minute and think about its implications.
and then really ask yourself, is it true that I can't? Or is it I don't want to? Or I have false beliefs about what homeschooling means for my child? This shit about they don't get social interaction, your children are told all day long by teachers not to talk to each other. Now they're told to not even be in the same space as each other. What kind of social interaction is that? The number one place kids do drugs for the first time is in school. The number one kid, place kids are abused physically is in school. Social interaction, my ass. Number two, well, they won't be able to get into college. Bullshit, bullshit, and bullshit. I have personally interviewed a young man on my show, homeschooled his whole life. You know where he went? Harvard. You know why? He was capable of doing Harvard-level work. Many of you have kids that will never be capable of doing Harvard-level work. They're never going to Harvard. You can put them in prep school and they're not going to Harvard. Your child will achieve as much as your child wants to, is given the opportunity to, and has the potential to, no matter how you educate them. Number three, they won't be able to get a job. Bullshit. Bullshit. And I'll tell you, we've done things in a hybrid way, and it's something I can, I can just completely set aside all of those objections immediately with. We use an educational program from a company called Excellus Academy. It costs us about 80 bucks a month because the boy watches one video a week to qualify for a scholarship. So I take the price from $250 a month to $80 bucks a month. You can come up with it. You can come up with it. He is not homeschooled. He is educated at home by a private school that is accredited in the state of California. If he went to a school in California, it would be accredited by the same organization. It's a private school at home. He has teachers. He is graded on his work. He is incentivized to take uh, unique uh, electives. He is exposed to very high-level scientific concepts of this video that he watches once a month, some that he gets, some that go over, but that is starting him young. The educational path will qualify him if If he makes the effort for it, for a full scholarship at the National Academy of Science, the guy that founded the, educa the, the, the program and the school invented the hydrogen car and the personal computer and gigabit Ethernet. I have members of my audience who have homeschooled their kids that had their kids going to community college when they were 15 years old. Everything that you've been told about how bad it is and how limited the options are is 100% steaming, stinking, Bullshit, and I'll tell you why they do it. They are terrified that you will break your programming and prevent them from ever programming your child. That's the reality. This system is a money suck. It is a money suck, and it is a system of programming the mind. It is a giant, multi-billion dollar business that monetizes your child sitting down and doing what they're told. And they're afraid to lose it. And all it takes is you getting over one word. One word. Can't. Most of you probably, when your child tells you they can't, say, don't use that word in my home. I hope you do. Just apply that same rule to yourself. It's not whether you can or you can't. It's what do you have to do to make it work. There are ways to do it. Take care, guys. I'll be back next week. 
Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.